Welcome to another episode of The Examined Athlete. I'm Clay Reichenbach. I'm so excited to have you all listen to this conversation today. This is easily one of my favorite conversations, and not just recorded conversations. I think it's one of my favorite conversations ever. My guest today is just a bright light named Dr. Sandy Parsons. Sandy is a social psychologist from Rice University, which is where I went to school. But so much more than that, she is warm, she is kind, and she is just incredibly encouraging and incredibly supportive. And it just felt really good to be in her energy for a while. I really enjoyed it and really thrived off it in the conversation, which I think comes through. And Sandy picked up on a phenomenon that takes place at elite universities around the country. And that is that athletes are not quite revered in the way they are on most college campuses around the country. In fact, there's a bit of a negative perception of athletes in academic circles. But what makes Sandy so rare is she decided to do something about it. She started an initiative at Rice University to study the dynamics involved and change the perception of student-athletes on campus, and even support their greater involvement in academic circles. We explored this perception in detail. We tried to take both sides of the argument and give it its due. We walked through the long-term effects on young people. We talked about imposter syndrome. We talked about the psychological effects that are taking place. We talked about identity. And we even tried to offer some solutions and some advice. And All of it was so much fun for me. I think you'll find the conversation is stimulating. At least I hope you will. I know I did. And I hope that students, student athletes, professors, administrators, anyone on college campuses or anyone involved in educating young people will hear the words and participate in the conversation. Sandy, I just want to thank you so much for sharing your light with me and for sharing your energy with me and sharing your time and your wisdom with me. I really, really enjoyed it. Ladies and gentlemen, Dr. Sandy Parsons. Guys, before we get going, I just want to remind you, if you like what we're doing here, please subscribe to the podcast. Please share the podcast. Subscribe to our socials at Examined Athlete on Instagram and Twitter. We're much more active on Instagram, but either one works to keep up with what we're doing. You can check out more about the show at www.examinedathlete.com. And there's even some merch there if you want to support us everywhere you go. I can promise you this, we appreciate your support, we appreciate the kind words, we appreciate the feedback, your support, your kind words, your feedback will absolutely never go unnoticed, I promise you that. Thanks guys. All right, Sandy, Dr. Parsons, thank you for joining us. We're now live. We're recording. And I brought you on for a number of exciting reasons for me. But one of them and we're going to focus on is your interest, your specific Mm -hmm. interest in athletes and young people on Rice's campus. Mm -hmm. But before we get there, let's start by giving us all a general overview of your background, your expertise, your interest, your focus, just Introduce yourself to us in a professional sense. Okay, I will. And thank you so much for having me. And you should definitely call me Sandy. 
So I am an associate teaching professor at Rice, and I've been there for about 11 years. And what that means is I'm non-tenure track, so my appointment is really 100% focused on being with undergraduates. So I live on campus. I teach three different undergraduate classes. There's a fourth class that I've just phased out, but I've experienced teaching undergraduates over the last almost 30 years. My doctorate is actually in social psychology, specifically small group processes, and I just knew that I what I was really drawn to was teaching undergraduates. I really wanted to hang out with that group and really get to know that group well. I've been at multiple institutions, but the longest one has been at Rice. And because my appointment is non-tenure track and service and teaching are the two main things I'm doing, the research that I do is either some sort of pedagogical research, so teaching and learning. It's called the SODAL Scholarship of Teaching and Learning. I'm very active in that. Mentoring other faculty members doing that kind of research, but also doing interventions, if you will, in my classroom and then collecting data to see if those are effective in increasing the learning process. And then also overseeing undergraduate research projects. And so one of the ways that I have had the opportunity to think about student athletes on campus is through those undergraduate research projects, looking at how people feel about athletes on campus and how athletes feel about their presence on campus and so on. That's so perfect for what we're going to get into and something I discuss with athletes all the time, especially athletes that went to elite universities. Mm -hmm. But we also have spoken about it a couple of times on this podcast because it's something I'm passionate about. But before we get there, what developed this interest for athletics in you and specifically athletes? Yeah, so that's that's a great question because I actually am not athletic and never played on any sort of a team. In fact, when I told my husband that I was coming to do this, he said, that's interesting and your expertise is, and I reminded him that I do research on this. But really it started because I had, I have a very athletic husband. He swam a year in college at an elite university. He went to Princeton and found that it was very difficult to manage having a girlfriend who was not on campus, a long-distance girlfriend. I am she. We've been married for 25-plus years, so that worked out. Be at a rigorous tier one institution, be a chemistry major, do all the stuff that entails, and also swim at the top level. And so knowing his struggling with the commitment that he needed to make to both his academics and also to his sport in order to be a top performer in both, I started becoming intrigued by that. I'm a social psychologist, so I'm very interested in how situational factors affect behavior. And so watching him change situation from high school to college and suddenly have this new set of expectations that really shouldn't have been new, but in a different context, they became new and challenging in different ways. That was probably the beginning of this. But then we had children who went on to become, I describe them as being D1 swimmers, but I'm sorry, D3 swimmers. But one of them went to a D1 school, so she didn't actually swim. She doesn't swim for Georgetown. She does club swimming. But my D3 swimmer was recruited by some schools and actually ended up going and swimming for a few years at Bowdoin College in Maine. And so thinking about their experiences being athletes in high school when it started to be a little more challenging to to juggle both of those, I think that's probably what piqued my interest. And then when I got to Rice, I had this – 
new context to think about how athletes are perceived because until I had been at Rice, I had only experienced the positive stereotypes about athletes. I come from Columbus, Ohio, where the Ohio State Buckeyes are the main thing going on in town in terms of athletics. And we were huge, huge, huge fans, continue to be long distance fans. And they're revered on campus. Same thing where I went to undergrad, graduate school, all of the places that I had been involved before I got to Rice. Really, athletes were heroes. And I certainly felt that way about my girls and about their abilities to manage all of these things. And then I got to Rice and I realized that the culture was not quite the same. It was was unique in some ways. And so the combination of all those experiences and then having a, a student who came to me and said, I want to study this. I want to start looking at some data regarding this issue. What do you know? What can you help with? And so I started applying what I knew about social identity theory and about stereotype threat and, of course, about research design. We put those pieces together and started studying it. Well, since you brought it up, I did look at your background, and I think you actually taught at Ohio State for a year or two. Is that right? I was in a laboratory. Yeah, so I was part of a laboratory looking at the physiological impact, psychological and physiological impact of stress on wound healing and really interesting stuff. But I was I was a data manager. And at that same time, I was teaching at a community college at Columbus well, State. Community. And the reason I brought it up is because I think you have a unique perspective because I would say at a place like Ohio State or the University of Texas, athletes mm-hmm. are somewhat deified on Absolutely. campus. Absolutely. And you have that perspective. Mm-hmm. You also went to UVA, which I think is a hybrid. It's mm-hmm. obviously academic right. excellence, but also sports is a big deal. And then you end up at Rice where... I'll share my story at some point also, but I think at best the students and the faculty are indifferent to athletics and at worst they may look down upon them a bit, which we'll get into. So you definitely saw a difference between an Ohio State, even a Virginia, and a place like Rice. Absolutely. Yeah, it was the same experience at UVA was we were always super impressed by the athletes and really excited when they came to our events and you know, of course, I wasn't teaching at the University of Virginia, so I didn't see that side of it. I didn't see the the academic implications potentially, but absolutely, it was it was a surprise to me that it was an issue on campus. I didn't realize that that was something that athletes and non athletes talk about. They they actually refer to themselves as athletes and regulars, which I thought I don't know if that's that's was in the vernacular when you were there. No, but it wasn't. I thought that was really striking. That's come up multiple times this semester. The contrast, these are from athletes talking about athletes and regulars. And I asked, I said, is that an identity? Like, is that a, that's an in-group, out-group identity? You know, people use these and they, everybody nodded. Yeah. Well, we're going to get into identity. So save those thoughts because I know know you study social identity. (laughs) When I was there, I think my junior year, there was some sort of a vote or petition to remove football. So Mm -hmm. it was in the zeitgeist. I was interviewed, actually, I think, for the paper about Mm -hmm. athletes and what they bring. And so I remember it. And for me, I've said this on the podcast before, I think there were some professors that were overtly anti-athletic. I had a number of them either subtly or actually come up to me and encourage me to drop a class. Mm -hmm. One came up in particular in the first day of class and actually addressed me and said, athletes don't do well in this class. And 
there was definitely a general sentiment on campus that having athletes, especially in higher level classes, as I'm a junior and senior, mm-hmm. was not a great thing, which we'll get into this. I can see both sides of that. And that's why I think it's so interesting. But I want I wanted an expert like yourself that has not only seen this, but done something about it, because I think it's not rare to pick up on that. But I think it is rare and says something about you that you decided to do something about Mm -hmm. it and start, this may be a little formal, but an athlete support initiative at Rice. So Mm -hmm. what are some of the things you've done on campus to try to bridge this chasm or encourage athletes to be more involved or maybe even change the perception of athletes? So some more formal and some less. So I told you that I am a, I think I said, I'm a resident associate. So I live on campus at one of the colleges. And before that, I was still over there a lot as a community, or I guess I was a faculty associate. So I was still spending a lot of time at the college and got to know a lot of the students. Through getting to know the students and thinking about these issues, I made it my business to meet the athletes, meet them early on as soon as they got to Rice, as soon as they were part of orientation week, find out who those students were. And to tell them that I was available to them as an advocate if there was something that they needed. If they were having, for example, if a student had come to me and said, I've had a professor tell me I should drop this class because I'm an athlete, that would be something that I would want to follow up on. I would want to go talk to the professor or send a note. You know, it's a small enough community that it's, it's I'm usually only, if a degree away, only one or two degrees away from from most of the faculty members. So I make sure, I still do I still do this, but this was the kind of the beginning of my intervention on behalf of the athletes, is to introduce myself and say, hey, I'm a fan. I think that you're doing two full-time jobs. Both of them you have completely different bosses for, and sometimes they are in absolute opposition to one another, the demands of the two jobs. And so I want you to know that I'm validating that, I'm recognizing that, and I'm willing to go go to bat for you, excuse the, the I'm sure it's salient no to me problem. for the obvious reasons, to go and, and be their advocate and to talk to them, but also to help advise them about how to navigate that system, how to avail themselves of resources and anything that I could do to help the psychological effects of hearing that from a professor not be as impactful, right, to sort of lessen that impact so that they wouldn't fail in those places because they were expected to fail in those places. So to kind of ameliorate that. So I so I do that. I also publicly, as much as possible, say out loud in front of my large classes and my small classes how much I appreciate athletes and that I we want to go to their games. We want to know when they're playing, when they're swimming, what are they doing, how can we cheer them on. And then I also say publicly Remember, everybody, they're doing two full-time jobs. And I kind of repeat the sentiment that I share privately with them one-on-one to the larger group so that I help – I'm hoping to help change some culture a little bit. And then I have some more specific initiatives. I don't know if you want me to talk about those. But one of the things that we wanted to do was to harness the skill sets that athletes bring with them to Rice and – make them salient to the athletes so that they're using those in classroom settings so they can see some transfer of skill. Because I am somebody who does think that athletes bring something interesting and important to the culture. And so they also bring something interesting and important to the classroom settings. 100%. And we'll get into that. What I heard when you say I'm a fan is not so much 
I'm a fan of the athlete, but I'm a fan of the person. Exactly. That's what I, I mean. I think that that's so key, not only to be an ally, but also to reframe what you're a fan of. Mm-hmm. I'm a fan of you as an individual right. and being successful in all domains of life. You talked about the separation and the difficulty of the job. I'll, I'll ask you a couple of questions around that because I definitely th- believe, I don't believe, I know, to be great in anything, whether it's academics or sports, one must commit an enormous amount of time, an enormous amount of energy. And just to give some listeners perspective, when I was in school, practice was three to four hours a day, another hour or so in the weight room, Mm -hmm. recovery, film, travel, games. Mm -hmm. Sometimes we travel for a full week or two weeks at a time Mm -hmm. and run series back to back. The logistics alone are daunting. And I don't want to make excuses because your job is to figure out how to do both. But I want to point out that it typically causes a tribe to form around your team. You're chasing the same goal. And that's not a bad thing. You're spending nearly all your time with your team. And that typically means you're not spending a ton of time in academic groups. And there's not a ton of time for that, which is not a great thing. So then the chasm is widened even greater. And I'm not sure how we overcome that exactly because everyone's goals are not going to be aligned and that's okay. What are your thoughts on overcoming that obstacle, just the logistics alone? It's such a good question. So one of the things that we know happens is that because the athletes do have such limited free time and have these very specific, they, they aren't in charge of their time in the same ways that other students are. And that means that they do tend to, like you said, form these tribes, these in-groups that are kind of impenetrable because they travel together, they they walk around campus together, they eat together, they only have narrow bands of time when they can be in their colleges. So then that means that the rest of the college doesn't get to know them as well. And then it really sets up this us and them in-group, out-group kind of a problem, which can be difficult, like I said, to overcome. So I my perspective on how to manage logistics. So I always tell my athletes, you all are in charge of managing the schedule. I will facilitate whatever I can do at my end, but I'm not going to memorize when your schedule is and I'm not going to change for the entire class. I'm not going to change things that aren't due, you know, just because I know there's a lot of traveling. But I do pay attention to when people are in season and I and I do talk to them about how as an advisor, if you're in season, you probably don't want to take this class that season, that you might want to push that off to another season. Simply because of what you were saying, when you have a class, for example, that has a lot of group work and every Thursday and Friday for weeks at a time, one of the group members can't be there because they're traveling for something, that can just be incredibly disruptive to both the athlete and also the people who are in the group, right? And so so that's one kind of way that I help manage it. But the other way is to just be flexible. So I think when you and I spoke er, spoke earlier about this, I had the sense that maybe we weren't – it'll be interesting to see what your perspective is because I think we may have not – we may have different perspectives on this. I feel like my job is to create a flexible atmosphere within some boundaries that the athletes can move in. And it's open to everybody. It just means the athletes are more often availing themselves of that. So if they need me to move a date around – and accommodate their logistics, or they need something to be online that would otherwise be in person, or if they need to use their teammates as group members for some data collection we're doing or some thought experiment, I often have groups of students collectively do something. 
I will let them do that. So instead of having peers in the in the classroom, I let them do it with the people they're they're with on the road. So I like to create these flexible situations for them where they can manage logistics of that. But they're always the ones who are in charge of it. I don't I don't manage the schedules and tell them I don't suggest how they're going to manage those things. I tell them, you know, here are the parameters, here here are what the due dates are. You let me know what you need and I'll accommodate that as much as I can. I and this is not what you're saying. I'm never a fan of lowering standards because I think you're doing a disservice to the human being. And that's not what you're I saying. Agree. That is not what I'm saying. That's not what you're saying. But I am a fan of people being human beings. Mm-hmm. And what I mean by that is understand the circumstances and the context and let's figure out a way to make it work for both people. But I guess what I was getting at is how do we not group athletes where they're working on their team together on this project? Do we not group academics? Because at that point, you're separating them even more. Mm -hmm. And I was fortunate enough to make some great friends that were non-athletes at Rice, but really I became great friends with them after I graduated. Mm -hmm. And if I could dare to give any advice here to young athletes at elite institutions is figure out a way to spend time in those groups. Right. Because those friends added so much to my life. Mm -hmm. And I didn't spend any time with them on campus. I didn't. And I don't even know if it was possible. But you did mention the last time we spoke that which didn't exist when I was there, or at least I don't know of it, is technology, is Zoom, Mm -hmm. is now you can be in a group and you can be in California on a road trip and still be participating in these robust intellectual discussions and be part of the group. And you mentioned that you're taking advantage of that. Yeah, absolutely. So, and again, it's open to everybody. It's it's not something that I I don't privilege the athletes or not, right? This is something that's open to everybody. But one of the things that I am very conscious of is when I do create these research groups, specifically I, have a, I teach a research methods class, is I don't put athletes together in the same group because I do want them to have interactions with other psych majors and with other, with other non-athletes. And having them be able to zoom in from remote locations has been tremendously helpful, again, for everybody, but specifically for athletes who are traveling, and that's ramping back up again, of course. But also – really encouraging people in the college to understand why it is that we have set up these in-groups and out-groups the way that they've formed. And that it's nothing about – Steele talks about this when he talks about stereotype threat – that it's nothing inherent in either the in-group or the out-group that makes them different from one another or not want to be with each other. It's circumstantial, right? It just – this is the way the situation has pushed these two groups to, to be defined. And so what we really need to do is be proactive and reach out to those other group members and not assume that because they travel in packs with one another that they don't want to be with with other people. So encouraging people at the college to go to the games and support, encouraging activities that happen off hours so that the athletes can attend those things, and trying to figure out like where are the places where we can meet and making sure that the athletes know that they're welcome, even though they're, they're not there as often or as consistently, or every lunch, or whatever it is, that we want them to come, and being very proactive. It's a lot of these things just require not being passive, and not just letting these situations roll along, but actively reaching out, and actively trying to understand 
the processes that are kind of forming these Which dichotomies. that's the path of least resistance. And that's why I said earlier, I, I wasn't just building you up because you're sitting in front of me. I think it's <laughs> rare because human nature is the path of least resistance. And I think what you're saying about reaching out goes both ways is to encourage the athletes too that hey this isn't just the students on campus's responsibility to attend your games and to include you this is your responsibility to be a student athlete and make those sacrifices yourself why don't you tell me what you think the general perception from faculty is of athletes at a place like rice Mm -hmm. or a Harvard or a Yale, what do you think the right. general perception is? Is it indifference or do you think there is a bit of kind of negativity towards having athletes that, let's be honest, did not arrive in these classrooms based upon academic merit the majority of the time? Right. So I think that there is a general sense of it, it, it's negative. It, there's a negative perception. And and I think the general sense is it's going to take extra time. It's going to take extra effort. They're not going to do well. They're not going to be around. We're going to have to figure out how to reschedule things. I mean, it, it it's disruptive to the routine. But this is a little bit – I'll get back to this. But I think COVID has actually ref, helped, helped a lot of us reframe what it means to be flexible and compassionate And so I am very interested to see how things change or don't change post-COVID if we ever get into a post-COVID world. Because now we do have the technology, we have the understanding that there are lots of things that lots of our students are going through that would cause them difficulty being part of the group or part of the class or whatever. But back to the question that you asked me is I think there is that perception that that they are not necessarily as qualified as the other people in the room. And so they're not going to do as well and it's going to be more work and more difficult. I think that is the, that's the perception. And I know that some of that, I know some of that is true from data that we've collected. So students talk about how that if they look like athletes, so there are certain body types, right? If they look like athletes, people perceive them as being athletes and treat them like they're athletes. Mm. And so it's interesting. They've, people in those positions have actually adapted to that by letting people know by talking about how I look like I'm a basketball player, but I don't play basketball. I'm not. I'm not on the basketball team, you know. And they'll they'll give their background story, but make it clear that they're not athletes, even though they look like they might be athletes. And so that tells me that that is a thing that they do feel like they are being stereotyped by professors and. What's students. the example of the stereotypes? Is it like I asked to drop class or being advised? That Uh, that you may not do well here. That you're not going to be around very often, that you're going to be constantly having to be caught up, that you're not going, that you aren't going to do well on the exams, that you're going to, your attendance is going to be low. Let's zoom out for a minute. And I want you to speak in a broader sense about human nature. From a psychological perspective, what effect does perception, whether it be good or bad, self-perception or outside perception, have on an individual? So the one of the ways that we know ourselves is through these social interactions. And so we we get to know about ourselves, obviously, from our own you know sense of self, but also from the way that people treat us and the kinds of feedback that we get from our environments, whether we learn that we are good at things because people praise us for those things or whether we are constantly getting failure feedback. 
our healthy mindset is to think of ourselves as being a little better than average. That's that self-serving bias. So we seek out information that confirms that, and we tend to remember information that confirms that. Again, not that we're better than everybody else at everything, but in general, on average, we're a little better than everybody else, more attractive, a little smarter, a little more funny, all of those kinds of things. And so when you are in an environment that expects you and you're aware of this, that there's a negative expectation about what your behavior will be or your performance will be, that can have a pretty severe detrimental effect. It it causes dissonance, of course, because you think of yourself as being a little better than average, but your environment is giving you the feedback that you're not, that you're somehow less valuable to your group, for example. So that can be problematic and it can be difficult to reconcile because of this dissonance especially if there's an identity that you have always treasured, something you've worked really hard at and something that in the past has been a very positive part of your sense of self. And then suddenly you're in an environment where you're getting information that that's not the case. So you asked me to talk about the positive and the negative. It can also be wonderfully boosting because when you're in a group of people and they're affirming you and they're validating you, it actually opens up what we call these like thought behavior repertoires, this broaden and build that if you are feeling very comfortable and very welcomed and affirmed, then you're more likely to have creative, divergent thinking, come up with novel ideas, and it's generally just a really positive. Probably have greater aspirations. Absolutely. And the adverse is true. You can probably remove aspirations that that student maybe had. Absolutely. Absolutely. That's why I'm so horrified to hear anecdotes like the ones that you shared about how you were told on the first day of class they don't know anything about you and they've already decided, A, that you're not going to do very well and B, share that information with you, which if you know about self-fulfilling prophecy, you know that that's problematic on both ends. That professor now expects you not to do well and it will be hard for that professor to overcome those expectations. There will be a bias in the way they see your work and the way they treat you in the classroom, which of course will affect your performance. And then also you have now this self-knowledge that, is dissonant with what you thought you knew about yourself, i.e. I'm not going to do very well in this class, even though I thought I was pretty good. And now you're going to do potentially worse. Or how about if I have a question and I feel a little dumb to ask it, I'm certainly not asking that guy that just told me to drop the class. Yeah. Absolutely. And that's a problem that's pervasive, right? We're always a little bit loath to ask questions when we don't know something. It's difficult socially. Mm -hmm. But if you're somebody who's been taught by your environment over time that it's embarrassing to ask questions, but it's a good thing to do because you're going to learn from it. And it's this is how we learn. And also you you over time learn that other people probably had the same question and so on. But if you're told going into the thing that you're probably not going to understand things, then that seems like confirmatory evidence that you're not very good at this thing. And you don't want to let on to not only to the professor, but to the rest of the class that that was correct. Well, and I've had great athletes sitting where you're sitting, Lance Berkman, Fumi Jimo, and we've all talked about these this bifurcation between self-confidence and self-doubt. Mm-hmm. We all have it, and I certainly had it, and I think as an athlete, you come in, even someone like myself who took my academics very seriously, wouldn't have got into Rice on my test scores without athletics, but still thought of myself as an intellectual, as someone who could compete in the classroom. Mm-hmm. Those experiences certainly highlighted my self-doubt a little bit. Mm-hmm. 
The nice thing about being an athlete, and I think there's actually some research in here. I read in on Malcolm Gladwell, Harvard, when they first let in athletes, did it because they knew someone had to be at the bottom of the class and athletes right. were bringing in confidence. Well, I had that confidence. I think my close friends might even say cockiness. <laughs> and I'd say at the time, and even now, I don't look back at that experience as a difficult one for me. I think of it, if I'm being honest, as... I'm above that affecting me. I really don't think in those terms. However, as I've grown and I've immersed myself in a study of thoughts and behaviors, it's clear how much that time at Rice affected me. I shared this with you before. I've embraced the athlete now. I mean, mm -hmm. obviously. So let me say I've, I've come a long way. But for years, I would not add the athletic achievements on my bio if mm -hmm. i was a, i was going into certain jobs or putting it in front of certain people in the business world when we'd have these zoom calls i have a big jersey in my office mm -hmm. i wouldn't show my jersey i didn't want that to I be love your jersey yeah well i didn't want that to be <laughs> what they recognized me for yeah and i even had new friends but close friends that it would be frequent for them to come up and say well you didn't tell me you played for the number one baseball team in the country and the defending national champions for me, I didn't want that to define me. And more than that, I wanted to be known as someone who could compete intellectually. Mm -hmm. And I was protecting that narrative. And I'm not trying to have tell you this to have a pity party for me. I don't I don't right. feel the need for that at all. I'm just trying to acknowledge mm -hmm. the fact that even for someone as confident as I was, it clearly affected me 20 years later. And I just find that so so perplexing not that i don't understand it intellectually but i i think it is so impressive when people are able to play at the top of their sport and go to a very rigorous institution that's why and your so, voice is so powerful well i appreciate that i just i i don't i i still am am constantly surprised by again not intellectually i do understand the, the forces at play but i really I don't get it. I don't get it. Um, it yeah, that's all. I just, I, it, it I, I me. just had a guest named David Vorbora and we talked about in his situation, he played in the NFL coaches, giving him the permission to believe, telling them they believed in him when he mm -hmm. didn't believe in himself. Mm -hmm. And we lingered on that point for a minute that it does take an influential voice like yourself to point out, no, no, no. I think that's impressive, Clay. You don't need to hide that. We yeah. see your intelligence because I was in my mid 30s hiding my jersey. And it took a friend of mine who I really trusted and respected to say, Clay, that's so silly. They're going to spend two minutes with you and realize your right. intellect. It's It was a lack of confidence. But I think it stemmed from growing up and going to Rice and feeling a little bit insecure and then mm -hmm. going, all right, I'm not going to let anybody know I'm an I'm an athlete. Mm -hmm. I'm going to show them that I'm here to compete in the classroom with the same intensity as I do on the field. And again, I just think it's wildly interesting that I carry that with me. Me too. And I, and I think I'm above it. I really do. I still kind of think I'm above it. And I'm clearly not. And you clearly were really affected by yeah. it. Yeah. Yeah. It's wild. It well, is wild. Let's talk. Let's linger on self-doubt for a bit. What what is this thing, imposter syndrome? And do you think it applies with student athletes oh in the classroom? Oh my goodness, absolutely. So it's something that is pervasive at 
well, everywhere, but it's especially at elite institutions and especially among the student athletes. Because as you said, there's a general acknowledgement that if you're on scholarship, that you didn't come in under the same kind of expectations. And so when we can all acknowledge that, like they know and we know and there's no, you know, there's no mystery about that part of it. Of course, that sets people up for having imposter syndrome, that they worry that they're going to be found out and they worry that they're going to be caught, except for they have this added element that they've already been caught, right? That it's it's not even a secret. So whereas I might feel imposter syndrome because of whatever normal processes that cause people to feel it, but in my case, I'm a woman, I'm non-tenure track, all of the things that might make me feel like I'm not really who people might think that I am. All of that is sort of I can mask that and I can I can swallow that and I can self-present and manage information about me that makes it seem as though I'm coping with that, which, by the way, can be quite problematic. We need to be talking more about our imposter syndrome and normalize it. Uh, you may not want me to share this, but how about our first conversation within five minutes? You said, well, I don't know if you want me on the podcast. There's better people. I, I mean, did. I yeah. did. And honestly, as I was thinking about coming over here, I was thinking, you know, he might just decide not to <laughs> not to release this because I am also aware of the people that the caliber of people that you've had before. And I do have just a very different kind of set of credentials. They're wonderful and I chose them, but I have some self-doubt. I have some imposter syndrome for sure. Being in a place like like Rice as a non-tenure track person, it is a, a little bit of a anxiety producing, uh, self-doubt making kind of a situation. There is I could make a case for how I am actually an imposter. <laughs> well, the fact that you're sitting here saying this, I'm telling you, there's going to be a student from Rice that's going to go, Dr. Parson has those feelings. Right. And Lance Berkman has those feelings. And David Vobora and Charlie Curtis, these guys that are influential voices, are right. powerhouses in their field. And that's when you said that to me, I was like, are you kidding me? I would <laughs> love to have you on. But- just speaking honestly mm-hmm. and letting everyone know that we all have these feelings. I we think it's all so. Do. I think it's surprising sometimes. I said that to mm-hmm. Lance. I said, "I'm confused. Wait, what? Right? Even me." But it's also inspiring. I think it's great that you shared. Have you? Uh, you've had to have done some work on big pond theory. I read it in Malcolm oh, Godwell about, about being a big fish in a little pond versus a the little idea fish in a big is pond. that. Elite universities aren't all good because they make a lot of really, really smart people feel dumb. Yes. And when you show up at an elite university and you're in the bottom quartile, you all of a sudden move out of the STEM field and move into something that's a little less intellectually right. rigorous. Right. And or perceived as being less intellectually that, That's true. Rigorous. I should choose my words carefully. It's a stereotype. But yes. But yeah, you move into more like social sciences. Yeah. But yeah. let's be honest. I mean, you know, mathematicians at some level, there's some things that are a little bit more challenging. But the point, I think, and I, this is a long time ago. I don't remember which Malcolm Gladwell book this was. But the point was, I think that most published papers and articles, mm-hmm. which you would know better than me, that's how you determine credentials in right. your field are not published by people from Ivy League schools. Right. And the idea is if you went to 
let's say the University of Houston as opposed to Rice, you may stay in that field and mm-hmm. have a very productive career and right. really add to that field. But instead, you showed up at Rice, you ended up in the bottom, bottom quartile, and you decided to transfer out of architecture, or transfer out right. of advanced mathematics, whatever it may right. be. Have you witnessed any big pond theory oh, in your career? And oh, had to, Have you had to jump in and say, tell a young person, wait a second, you're right where you need to be. Don't give up. Have you done yes. that? Yes. Oh, my goodness. Countless, countless times. We also talk a lot about how just because it's challenging or just because you're not going to get, they talk about failing, and I'm sure you had the same perspective. Failing often means they're getting a B for the first time. And so when they say they're failing a class, I'm like, okay, what do we need to do? And then I realized, no, no, we're not talking about an F. We're talking about B or C. So yes, I'm constantly saying, stick with it. Everything isn't going to be easy. Some things are going to be challenging. Sometimes you're going to learn that you heard this narrative your whole life. You're so smart. You should be an X. And then you get here and maybe you don't want to be an X, but maybe you do and it's just not going to be easy. It's going to be challenging. It's going to be difficult. I worry a lot about the effect that it has on our students where they suddenly, especially for our athletes, I think, suddenly are are a little fish in a big pond where they're used to being the big fish in the little pond and that we are teaching them that they're not enough and that they're not part of the community and that they are constantly struggling to come back to some sort of kind of baseline expectation because they're trying to overcome all these thoughts about that worries me a lot because as you said you had a fairly positive experience it sounds like and yet years and years later you were still struggling with what should otherwise, in my mind, have been a really important part of your identity. Absolutely. Well, what have you found that's been helpful? What do we do about it? What have you done about it? So I think, I mean, one of the biggest things that we can do is normalize it and talk about it and talk about the fact that we literally every single one of us suffers to some extent from imposter syndrome, that we all worry that we're going to be found out, that we have managed information about us about ourselves to the world so well that our secrets are eventually going to come out and people are going to find out that we are we are not as worthy of the accolades or the position or whatever it is. So that's one of the things that's very effective. But also to remind students that they're there for a reason, that there was something in them that people who have experience choosing saw, right? So it's not – it's. It, I, I just – I don't believe that it's the case that anybody is at Rice – a hundred percent because of their athletic ability. I just don't believe that. So there's some informed process that has selected these students to be there and that they are part of what makes Rice interesting and diverse. And they're part of what makes my classes interesting. And they teach us things because they have different perspectives on from non-athletes, right? There's a work ethic and an, a very early commitment to time management that's unique to athletes. And so all of those kinds of things, normalizing those things, talking about them, reminding students that we all feel this way, and also reminding students that they're there for a reason and that they should, if they can't trust themselves in that moment, trust the process that got them there. Now, having said all of that, it is absolutely true that there are sometimes students there who are not prepared to be there. But it has been my experience that that's not just athletes. Let's go there. I want to definitely take the other side of the argument and grapple with it a bit. Right. One of the points that we've mentioned a couple of times is that the majority of athletes did not end up in these classrooms based on academic merit. 
there is a place for unreasonably high standards, for mm-hmm. unnegotiable standards. I believe it's clear society benefit from those institutions. I believe there's there should be space for those type of spaces. Mm-hmm. And in a perfect world, universities would protect those intellectual rigorous spaces and provide opportunity for underprepared student athletes. Mm-hmm. But in reality, there's trade-offs. So mm-hmm. in your mind, what should be the goal of a place like Rice? Should it should the priority be elite academic institution that's protecting rigor mm-hmm. and protecting standards or providing opportunity for underprepared student athletes or underprepared students? Where where should the priorities lie? So I think the priority needs to lie with protecting the academic rigor. I really do. However, I think – and this is where I thought we might have different perspectives on this because I got a sense that maybe maybe we weren't in, in perfect agreement about this. I think we can protect, protect academic rigor and also provide opportunities for students who otherwise wouldn't be in these spaces. I have had many students over the last 12 years – for whom a rice degree was absolutely life-changing, absolutely life-changing. Opportunities that they absolutely would not have had except they were excellent in their sport and got the opportunity to come and be part of the rice community and graduate with a rice degree and then go on and leverage that to do something else fabulous or learn some skill sets that they didn't that they never anticipated they would. Like by their senior year They're winding down their sport. They're not going to go professional. And they suddenly realize they're super, super interested in asking questions that involve psychological experimentation. And they want to pursue that during some time after graduation. Just really wonderful, life-changing things. So I think obviously protecting the rigor – I say obviously. To me, it's obvious. We need to protect the rigor. We're not going to water down standards. That does no one any sort of – service, including, by the way, the athlete who gets a degree from Rice, if it's been watered down for them, then it isn't worth the paper that it's printed on. Is it printed on paper? I don't know. I'm assuming it's it's sheepskin. (laughs) I think you get to choose. You can choose between paper or sheepskin. Sure. All I know is it's just very lovely. (laughs) So we, we need to protect that. But at the same time, we can expect there's going to be variability in performance. And I think that's okay. Not every student is going to graduate from Rice with a perfect GPA. There's going to be some variability. There's going to be some need for tutoring. There's going to be some resources that I think we do owe them. We are responsible for them. When we let them in, we say we expect you to to succeed at this. And so when we let people in who are underprepared, I do think that we owe them extra time and extra resources. Now, where those come from, that's another issue. I don't think we're that far apart. I'll tell you what I really believe and maybe answer some of my own questions here in a bit. Okay. But let me play contrarian for a little while longer. So okay, sure. I think the contradiction that is difficult to reconcile is that in some classrooms at Rice, you're dealing with the academic equivalent of a University of Alabama football player. Mm-hmm. And in some classrooms at Rice, you're dealing with the academic equivalent of a national championship with their research and the goals that they're going after. Right. Yet Nick Saban is not lowering the standards to give unprepared athletes a spot on his football team. So I guess my question is, why is it important that a professor give an athlete the opportunity in a classroom that his counterpart over at Rice Stadium wouldn't give on the field? I guess because, I mean, from my perspective, Rice's reason for being is the academics, not the not the sport. 
I, 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 yeah, I'm not, I'm not sure I'm qualified to answer that other than to say, just because I don't understand the athletes, athlete side of it from that well, perspective. But I, but I feel like that's, that's a different animal. Like I'm there because of the academic rigor and because I am meant to create inclusive spaces and maintain the rigor, but also allow for opportunities for these people that others have decided should be part of our community. I don't feel like it's my job to weed out those folks. And you don't feel like they take away from the mission in a higher level psychology class or the goals if they're, forget about unprepared, let's say they lack ability. You don't think it takes away from the standard and the mission? No, because I feel like there's a mechanism for them not being there. (laughs) You know what I mean? If they can't perform in my classroom with the standards that I've set and also with the flexibility for not the meeting of the goals, but but the timeline of the meeting of the goals, then they'll fail the class. Just I think kind of like if, if we took the other perspective, if we let someone on the team who wasn't prepared to be on the team, they'd get cut. They wouldn't be there. Well, in the classroom, you don't get cut, but... You do when yeah, you give Fs. Yeah, I guess you're right. Well, yeah. let me answer my own question. And I don't think we're far apart at all. My opinion is in some classrooms... They should be treated like an Alabama football team. There should, I mean, to me, opportunity for underprepared or lack of ability holds back the mission. But in general education settings, Mm -hmm. you mentioned this earlier, intelligence is domain specific. Mm -hmm. And while I couldn't have articulated it that way when I was in school, Mm -hmm. I knew I was well out in front of my peers in other domains, domains that were very important. Mm-hmm. And my experience at Rice was that if your child has spent their entire career in a private school setting, both in school and outside of school, they have some gaping holes in their life education. Absolutely. And surrounding them with engaged individuals, not just individuals, they've got to be engaged student athletes, but that bring different perspective, that bring different viewpoints, that bring different skill sets like I had and different experiences, in my opinion, rounds out the educational experience and is the reason why you make exceptions for some that may not come in with the test scores mm-hmm. as long as they're still. So that would be my answer. To yeah, that no, question. I, I agree. I like that answer. I, I also will point out there are some classes that just simply don't work with the travel schedules. Like thing like for example, labs where things where you have to be there for there are certain things that you have to be there for. And all the technology in the world isn't going to ameliorate the fact that you're gone three weeks in March. You know, there are some there are some serious problems where you can't maintain the same in order to maintain the rigor of the classroom, you can't be super flexible. And so I think those are places where I always talk about how like situation picks person, but person also picks situation. That seems to me to be an example of that, where there are some fields that just you're going to have to go back and pick those up after your season or after your sport ends because they just don't work with your preparation and your ability to be there. Yeah. And another thing I'd add, again, this is maybe a bit, I don't know, arrogant of me to try to give advice to student athletes there, but is that we as athletes, I'm including me, need to be prepared to hear some hard truths sometimes. Mm -hmm. And 
we don't need to be patronized. Sometimes you need to hear that's not good enough or the effort's not there, which for many of my peers and me in some classes was Mm -hmm. the truth. And we even need to be able to say the ability is not there yet. Right. And I think as athletes, we should arrive on these campuses with a little humility and bust our ass to catch up and make an impact and soak up everything you can. Mm -hmm. And as I mentioned earlier, compete in the classroom with that same level of intensity. Mm -hmm. And if you're not, have someone like yourself that's an ally, but also will speak a hard truth to an athlete when you see efforts not there or when you see that what they're giving you is not good enough. Absolutely. Yeah. Like I said before, you're doing a disservice if you don't speak to your students, all of them that way. And right? I would add to to the athlete, use your confidence to develop a sense of belonging. I've said this before. I think confidence and belonging are close cousins. Mm-hmm. Not entitlement, but confidence. And I've, my mother used to say this to me, is if you've put in the work, you belong in any room. Mm-hmm. And I, like I think that's one of the things that made me successful. It allowed me at 24, 25 years old to sit across the negotiating table with head of real estates from Fortune 500 companies mm-hmm. is I knew I'd put in the work and I knew I belonged. And I, when I got in a position where I could mentor other mm-hmm. people, I used to say that to them all the time. I say, you belong in this room. Right. And I think that's something that I would try to communicate to athletes is, again, the caveat, if you've put in the work, you belong here and believe that even if you're not the smartest person in the room, even if you're not the most prepared person in the room, you belong. Keep moving forward. That mm-hmm. that would be my advice. I, I think that's wonderful advice. I had a student who was in an upper level class. I believe he was he was either a second semester junior or first semester senior and was had turned in a paper and I hadn't graded it yet, but I had seen other writing that he had done. And he said, well, I'm not a very good writer, Dr. P, and blah, blah, blah. And I said, you you actually are a good writer. I enjoy your reading. And it was the first time he had ever heard that at Rice. Nobody had ever told him that they enjoyed reading his writing. And I thought, my goodness, what are we doing that we're not giving – that we're not telling people like you belong – because he certainly had a lot of writing classes that, that nobody had ever said, I enjoy your writing, right? I think your ideas are interesting or given him – some positive feedback to go along with the other messaging that that he was getting. And I think those kinds of messages, you belong, I can see your effort, you're growing, I want you here, you're interesting, all of those kinds of things are messages that we need to... We used to call it at my company, I see you. I used to tell my managers, make sure your people know that you see them. And I've thought a lot about that question. And I think it's because we don't, teach leaders to recognize that. And this is going to sound super silly, but I take my girls to Starbucks every Saturday, my two girls. Mm -hmm. And a couple of weeks ago, my oldest daughter, who's five, this lady walks in full of tattoos, bright yellow hair. Mm -hmm. And my five-year-old just goes, oh, I love her hair. And I told her, I said, go tell her. Yeah. And she's like, what, daddy? I said, go tell her you love her hair. And she goes up and she tells her, I love your hair. And this it was a young lady, but mm-hmm. just lit up. Yeah. I'm trying to instill in her that if you see a light in someone, tell them. Yes. And you you might not think it's a big deal as the influential voice. That's maybe why pe- leaders don't do it. That's not that big a deal. Mm-hmm. 
that could change their life. Telling that person that you enjoy their writing changed the trajectory of that person's life. Mm-hmm. But it doesn't feel like that big of a deal to the leader or the influential voice, which is why I think it's not done very much. Right. I also think there's this strange misperception that when you tell and I think it's a cultural, I think it's culture specific, but I haven't I haven't nailed down exactly the mechanism. But that if we compliment somebody, we're somehow saying that ours is not as good or that somehow is that there's a zero sum in the compliment game. Which makes no sense to me, but I, I am somebody who this is sort of obnoxious. You may not want to use this part, but is that I I'm somebody who absolutely I thank people, I compliment people, I tell them when they've done a good job, I write fan letters. Um, Seligman talks about writing fan letters, like telling people who are in your world that you see what they're doing and that you appreciate. It. It's so easy to complain, and it's so easy to walk past someone with cool, bright yellow hair and not say anything, right? But it makes such a difference. And it makes a difference for the person who's giving the compliment too, by the way, right? There's something really wonderful about looking outward from self and that that has implications for well-being. So anyway, I think there's, I think that's, that's wonderful that you're teaching them to do that because it is a misperception that we somehow are revealing a weakness when we tell someone how great something they're doing is. I want to talk social identity with you a little bit. I told you I'd bring it up. It appears to me that a lot of what we're talking about is about social identity, which you Mm -hmm. teach. Social identity, if I'm correct, is about how we view ourselves and others in a social context. Is Mm -hmm. that right? Can you elaborate on what? That's right. So so I, I think I touched on this a little bit before too, is that one of the ways that we know ourselves is by the social groups, is the groups that we're members of. And so we are constantly thinking about and drawing lines between the us's and the them's. And so we are we we have in-groups and we have out-groups and we know something about ourselves by where those boundary lines are. And it is a natural predisposition to think of our in-groups as being a little better than our out-groups, if only just because we're members of the in-groups and we think we're a little better than the average person. And so we derive our self-worth from the evaluations of those groups and the kinds of things, the kinds of groups that we're a part of and the recognition that we get for being in those groups. And there's a wealth of literature about what happens when those identities are threatened and how we protect those identities and things like that. So is one of the things you're trying to do is reframe student athletes, social identity. Yes. I want them to see it. They need, when they come to campus, they have obviously already developed a social identity around being an athlete, right? It means something to them. And one of the interesting things about social identity, by the way, is that when people feel like their membership is denied in one of those groups, if it's a really painful feeling, if it's really offensive, like you're not really a this, if that really hurts, then you know that that's something that's pretty integral to your sense of self. So – when athletes come to Rice, one of their primary identities has probably been developed over years is as an athlete. But it's also probably the case that they're, they've been told they're a smart person as well, right? That they do well in school and they're also a, an elite athlete. And then they get to Rice and there's this dissonance because the, what they thought they knew about those identities is suddenly threatened because the, the non-athletes are the attitude very in the aggregate, very generally speaking, is, but you're not really a Rice student, 
Oh, like, sure. You're yeah. really an athlete. And, and it's, like I said before, it's especially problematic for students who look like athletes. So they either are or not. We can argue about how particularly painful it might be for the person who is perceived as an athlete and is interacting in those social spaces, being treated as an athlete, but actually doesn't even have the benefit of being an athlete. So they don't even have the positive identity that goes along with it. But the, but the students who are recognizable on campus because of body type as being athletes have this dissonance because they thought they were smart and they indeed are at Rice, but they're being told you're not really one of us, you're really one of them. And so they have to reframe that. And so one of the things that I talk to students about a lot in my classes is about how those lines happen fairly automatically. Like the, the, the lines that we draw between the us's and the them's are things that are often very easily drawn, very automatically drawn. There's demographic variables. There's college affiliation. There's all sorts of things that kind of fall into the place. But if we are effortful and we remind ourselves that those are socially constructed by and large, we can redraw the lines. And so even though we are never going to be in a place where we can't, where we don't have in-groups and out-groups, we can make it so that those lines are so flexible and, and so changeable with effort that we can start to be inclusive of other people and then we start to diminish the problem of prejudice and yeah, and I understand. And- I've just recently been reading about this. There's there's such thing as negative identity and positive identity. Right. And the positive side is emphasizing our shared humanity and right. where we overlap, not necessarily where we are separate. Right. This is not going to fit perfectly with social identity, okay. but since I have you here, I want to take advantage of it. Okay. Misplaced identity. I believe misplaced identity personal identity is something elite level performers struggle with often. I certainly have. I I think it's impossible not to start to derive a sense of who you are, self-worth from your accomplishments Mm -hmm. on the field of play, whatever your field of play may be. Mm -hmm. And I don't know if this is wise or not. So I want you to, you to tell me, and it's definitely not grounded in science. I separate identity from self-esteem. And mm-hmm. so I want to talk to you about how they're linked. In my eyes, identity should be reserved for only those things that are most important. Your family, your friends, your mm-hmm. character. Self-esteem, on the other hand, I think of it as something that you can build up in many places, even superficial places like mm-hmm. financial outcomes, you know, appearance, things like that. Mm-hmm. Does that make any sense or should I be separating self-esteem and outcomes also? It's actually a little bit more complicated than that. So self-esteem has a sort of muddy scientific profile because we think of self-esteem as being something that's super, super important to have really a lot of, right? We want to have really positive self-esteem, really high self-esteem. We talk about it as, as an entity that we want to increase. And what's really actually problematic about that is that, and I think it's related to what you're thinking about with misplaced identity, is that if it's based on inaccurate information, then it can be quite problematic for a variety of reasons. One of which is when you find out the truth, when somebody has gives you a blow to your self-esteem by giving you some truth telling, it can be have quite a dramatic effect. So people who have overly positive self-esteem based on false information have all sorts of problems. So it's not the case that we want to strive for having super high self-esteem. What we really want to strive for is accurate, an accurate sense of self with the proviso that we need to feel that we're a little bit better than the average bear in most 
in most things because it's protective. It's what a protective about mechanism. building up your self-esteem on things that are true? You are yeah, so making no, a lot of money. You are a successful athlete. Right. Is that healthy? Yes, or that is healthy. That is healthy. That is healthy because that that allows you to, that goes back to what you were talking about with the confidence and the belongingness. That if you have the sense and accurately, an accurate sense of you are successful, you should People do have esteem for you and you should have it for yourself because you are good at these kinds of things. Gives you that confidence, gives you that sense of belonging, which then, back to what I was saying before, that means that you're going to be more fully engaging in tasks and in social relationships and all of these really enriching things that make your life better and improve well-being and success. So accurate self-esteem when it's positive is actually really great right? It's, it, it is really good for you. In terms of how that's related to identity, I think that identity is, you're not wrong to separate them because you can have esteem benef- benefits from being part of having positive social identity memberships. So they're related to each other, but I think having them in separate bins is somewhat Let me give sense. you an example. So, and this may or may not make sense, but if this podcast goes really, really well, yeah, that's going to build my self-esteem right. and I'm going to feel better about myself. Right. But whether or not this podcast goes poorly or well shouldn't have anything to do with my identity, which I'm, I guess I'm using identity as a euphemism for, for value, I guess. Right. Is, is, you know, your value is tied up in my girls and my wife and my right. parents and my brothers. It doesn't have anything to do with how well this podcast goes. But so it could have an impact on your social identity as a podcaster or as a successful facilitator of beautiful conversation or as an advocate for student athletes, right? So so the social identity has to do with these group memberships and the positive benefits you have from being a part of those groups. And so if this podcast really hits, goes viral or whatever the terms are, wildly popular, thousands and thousands of followers, that can positively impact that identity that you have tied to this particular is that not dangerous though that you do well it can well i mean dangerous it can be if you have all of your eggs in that basket if you have all of your identity tied up in this you don't as it turns out i'm not the least bit worried about about that for you clay on some days i do but well (laughs) and you know there's a there's an adage you're only for lecturers for, for professors you're only as good as the last lecture and that's absolutely true it's absolutely true i shared with you an anecdote in fact about how i'd had a particularly difficult day it's hard to overcome those kinds of things and if you if you have these identities that are fragile or that are not differentiated from other identities or based on successful outcomes absolutely then that can be quite problematic because that's how you know yourself that's how you place yourself in the world i think too you made a point about how to shrink the chasm between athletes and students is to have conversations absolutely be speaking about these things share your doubts i think the same is true here you're never going to get past it but if you have conversations about value and identity often with your circle your close circle mm-hmm. or with people you just met on a podcast like yourself and me <laughs> but if you have those conversations often it becomes easier to recognize okay yes yes this successful outcome is important to me i can build my self esteem with it but that's not what makes me valuable absolutely and, yeah. Absolutely. Well, I, thanks yeah. for sharing that. Let's wrap this up. Okay. And we're not going to do justice to what you teach around positive psychology, but I think it's a nice bow to tie here. Okay. 
the title alone piqued my interest. What is positive psychology? And in general, what do you cover in positive psychology? I'm so happy you asked me about this class. I love this class so much. It is a beacon of light, especially in what have been some really difficult times. So positive psychology is all about how to improve people's experience of their lives. So it's it's focused on not overcoming pathology, not trying to solve problems to get back up to some sort of baseline status quo. It's how do you go beyond that? How do you improve that? How do you really harness all of the resources and all of the potential that you have to live a really fulfilling life? So one of the things that I love about this happiness sign that you have in your in your studio is that it has that capital letter H, that it's more than just the hedonic kind of pleasurable experience where we think about happy people as being bubbly and sparkly and skipping through the beautiful quad at sunset. It's complicated. It's effortful. It's flourishing. It's having meaningful relationships and challenging work and surrounding yourself as much as possible. You can't always, but having people in your life who will really have your back. People, social support networks are so important to well-being. If you look at longevity, just, I won't bore you with all the details, but people live longer when they have fulfilling relationships. It's just empirically true. And so we talk about all of the things under that umbrella, optimism, resilience, flourishing, the difference between hedonia and eudaimonia and how that affects your choices for job. I don't you know, even know what those two words mean. So hedonia <laughs> is the part of as the aspect of happiness that's just pleasurable. Okay. You know, it's like all the things that you can think of that are physically pleasurable. We don't spend a ton of time talking about all of those. We just acknowledge that those is that's a category. And then the eudaimonic things, which are service-oriented. And they might not be pleasant in the moment, but they are deeply satisfying. They're where they're the, the life's meaning is found in those. And often activities can be both. Like, for example, I think of this as being both. This is super fun. It's really great to talk to somebody who's challenging and interesting and has interesting life experiences and things like that. But it's also eudaimonic, right? There's a service part of this. I know part of your mission is to have these beautiful conversations to bring people together and to understand each other more. And so – uh, you know, there might be pieces of like I was nervous before, right? That's certainly not pleasant, but also meaningful. And how it, it's how I know I'm doing something that's important. So we we cover all sorts of things. One of my favorite parts of the of the class is that there are lots of interventions, empirically based interventions that are effective in boosting people's well being, short term and also long term. And so we practice those during class. So every unit has some sort of intervention, at least one, if not two or three, that the students actually get to participate in and talk about and then potentially go take with them and use past the boundaries of my class. And I'm, I'm just – I have to crow a little bit because I'm so pleased to tell you that I've had so many students from previous semesters email me and say, thank you so much for – teaching us about X, Y, or Z, or for providing a space for exploring this, because it helped me in these moments that we've had that have been so challenging over the last, what, 18 months? Yeah, I think it's awesome to have a blueprint or a template for 
a path to happiness or well-being or positivity. Yes. I think that's really, really cool. I think we could do a whole podcast on that, but we won't linger there. My, <laughs> my last question is, can I audit that class? Absolutely. Uh, you are welcome awesome. anytime. Awesome. Absolutely. I'm also happy to share the syllabus with you. Very good. Well, I, I think it's clear you're built for creating more positive environments. And I hope you feel like you definitely should have came because I think this was I've, this was beautiful. It's been fantastic. I really appreciate you you talking with me and this has been just fantastic. Thank you so much. This has been so much fun. I appreciate it. Thank you so much. It was nice meeting you. Oh, 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 oh,